Hey, everybody. Hello. Welcome to church. It is so great to have all of you uh, here with us. If I don't uh, know you, my name's Ashley. I'm one of the pastors here. It's the first Sunday of Lent, as Katie was saying. And we are well on our way in this Lenten journey. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 4. And get those out. And as you're, we're all turning there. We get to read together every week and then we, we pray. And um, I feel really thankful for what I believe um, the Lord would like to say to us through what is uh, probably, for a lot of you, a fairly familiar text. Start with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, we are, Lord, indeed thankful for the gift of your word for the gift of your presence here with us. Thank you, God, today for the shelter, Lord, in the shadow of your wing, for a place of refuge, a place, God, to come and to be with you and to try to hear from you. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, for your help. Will you, God, open us up? Give us the ears, God, we need to hear. Help us, Lord, to see what we need to see in ourselves and in you. Jesus, we stand here, Lord, on the threshold of the wilderness, and we have to, God, choose to go with you, Lord. Will you help us, Jesus, to choose you, to choose to follow you? It's your name, Jesus. It gives us hope and strength and peace. And it is your name, Lord, that in which we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I think Sarah's right. Uh, this, this year, going into Lent, uh, is tough, just like last year was, was, going, was tough, calling people to go um, into the season of Lent. Um, I had a number of people say to me before we ever got to Ash Wednesday, uh, 
Don't even talk to me about Lent. Lent is canceled for me this year. I won't be doing it. <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, I get it. I feel it too, right along with all of you. Um, for those of you who, who maybe aren't familiar, I don't want to assume, I hope there are people in this room who have like no idea what Lent is about and maybe you've never even heard of it before. Um, Lent is a season in the church calendar, a 40-day season, in which we're called by the church with a capital C to be really intentional about being prayerful, praying more, being more reflective, doing self-examination, repenting more, like saying we're sorry, trying to like check out what's going on here. And so it can be a somber season because you're having to deal with like all your stuff, you know, and the church calls you to focus on it, highlight it, pay attention to it, name it, be honest about it, and then like confess it before God and, and deal with it. And so it can be like a, a heavy and hard time. And therefore Christians fast Traditionally, during Lent, it's a time when we, we stood here on Ash Wednesday and we called you not only to deal with your own mortality, your own sin, but to fast in an effort to like invite God, like make space for him, right, so that he could work through you in it. So Christians fast more, they repent more, you know. So from like 30,000 feet away, it looks like a sad time <laughs> and can, it can feel kind of, kind of heavy, you know, going into it. And here's the thing that I feel both called to uh, say on Wednesday when we started this journey together and again today, because some of you may just kind of be coming around to, to Lent. If all Lent is about is fasting and giving things up and feeling really bad about who you are and what you've done, just like don't do it. I, I, nobody needs more of that right now. Arguably, never. <laughs> we don't really ever need uh, more of that. But here's, so you never need more of it. You also, like, it just won't matter for you, really. It won't do the thing in you that God intends for it to do. Because our fasting and our confessing, our repenting, all of that has to be about something. It has to be for the sake of something. Fasting is not an end in and of itself. Feeling bad is not an end in and of itself. All of that has to be aimed at something ultimately as God is always aimed at something hopeful and redemptive. That's what the wilderness was about for Jesus. It's what it was about for Israel. And it has to be about what it's for you. Or just like, don't do it. If all Lent is for you is a kind of spiritual workout, you know, or like get some time at the soul gym, or you can really, you know, beef it up. Like, I just don't. Because what happens is like you either won't do it for the same reason you don't want to go to the real gym because you just like who needs more hard right now? So you either just you won't do it and then you're going to feel bad about not doing it, you know, like, oh, man, <sighs> really should have linted and I didn't. And I just feel constantly bad about the fact that I'm not doing it, you know. Or you're going to do it and go real hard and grit your teeth until you get through it and then get to Easter and be like, well, I don't feel better. <laughs> I'm just glad I'm not doing that anymore. Glad it's over. So can we just collectively choose today that the Lord's intention, his word over you, as they say, is one of hope and redemption. And that he invites you into the wilderness for the sake of doing something hopeful doing something redemptive. And if that Jesus is not the one leading you into the woods, don't go. But if it's that Jesus, then you can follow him anywhere. He will make even the woods and the wilderness to serve you. That's who he is. And that's what this is about. 
When we think about Lent, we are reminded of two wilderness stories. We talked about this on Ash Wednesday. We recall wilderness, uh, Israel, <laughs> a hybrid between Israel and wilderness. I just made up a new word. Israel's time in the wilderness. They spent 40 years there. That's a long Lent, wandering. Israel had to go into the wilderness, if you'll remember, after being delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They went to Sinai, and then they went into the wilderness before they got to the promised land. So the wilderness was for them a time of preparation. God was doing a new thing, a new beginning. And that time was meant to prepare them for the thing that God was going to do on the other side of it. Similarly, Jesus' time in the wilderness was also a time of preparation. Jesus went to the wilderness after his baptism before he began his public ministry. So up until the time in the wilderness, Jesus was a secret, even to those closest to him. After the wilderness, he began being who he is, more openly. So both were about preparing for something on the other side. In that way, Lent is a preparation for Easter. But here's what I want to say to you. While I do very much believe that God is doing a new thing. God is always wanting to lead you into something new. That's just who he is and what he does. There's a lot he'd like to get done, you know what I mean, in the world. And he would very much like for you to come with him and be a part of it. So he's always leading us into something new. But here's what I feel like compelled to say. I think for all of our sakes, if you find yourself getting into Lent at this moment and you feel like the person who's just sort of like always preparing and never arriving, then Lent will also lose some of its luster for you because you're like, oh, here I am again, preparing, you know, like you've lived your whole life kind of looking around the corner. If I could just get to that threshold, then surely on the other side of it, there awaits the man I'm meant to be, you know the future I'm supposed to have, the thing that God's called me to, whatever it is for you, I don't know your, like, horizon. I don't, I don't know what that looks like. But here's what I do feel impressed upon to say today, particularly in light of the text that we're going to look at. The wilderness for Jesus was in and of itself a gift and a redemption. It wasn't just preparation for the good things on the other side of it. God worked a miracle, an act of healing and redemption through Jesus in the wilderness. And the reason that feels important for you is that you need to know that what God cares about for you, yes, your tomorrow, yes, your future. But Paul said it today. Today is the day of salvation. It's all you've got. It's all you know you've got is now. I wish I could promise you Easter or the horizon. But this is the dark side of Lent. We don't know. What we do know is that God is who he says he is, and he is who he says he is today. And so that means that there is a gift in this wilderness for me now. There's something to get today and in these 40 days, not just Easter on the other side. So like with that in mind, with that, I hope, question, like what is the gift maybe of the wilderness for you? What act of healing and redemption would God like to do for you now? With that in mind, I want us to look at Jesus and look what he does with his time in the wilderness. If you go to the text, Luke chapter 4, and you start reading in verse 1, 
you're picking up right after Jesus' baptism. Jesus has just been baptized. Jesus passes through the waters. He comes up out of the water, and he has an experience of God. Presumably not his first, but an important one. Comes up out of the water, and what happens? Do you remember? What does God say? This is my son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus hears it. The people hear it. Powerful. So Jesus gets baptized. He passes through the waters. He has this experience of God. And then immediately, the text says, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I just want to say this. In case that you've missed it, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Not just into the wilderness and then dropped off. (laughs) And that matters for me and you. I need the Lord to not just take me to the door at the woods and then sort of, you know, shove me in. Like when my mom dropped me off at daycare when I was a kid, you know, like, no. (laughs) And then pushes us in. It's not like that. Jesus takes us to the wilderness, and then the Holy Spirit is leading us through, just like the Lord did for him. The Lord is is with you through this, not just getting you here, but seeing you through it. So Jesus goes into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days. He's exhausted. He has a struggle. Satan comes, has been there. And then on the other side of it, he leaves. I think that this whole, if you're zooming out a little bit, if you're familiar with the Bible, this story, when you get to this part of Luke's gospel, sounds familiar to you. Because it's recalling the other wilderness story. Israel also passes through the Red Sea, a kind of baptism or a birth. Because you remember, Israel started out in Egypt as this loose confederation of slaves, slave people. They get delivered by God. They pass through the Red Sea, kind of symbolic of a birth or baptism. They have an experience of God on Sinai. They hear him. He constitutes them as a people. And then he sends them into the wilderness before they get home to Canaan. So that that story is a kind of pattern that's playing out again here in Jesus' life. And I suspect it's probably played out in a lot of your lives. You were born. This is me. I was born. I was baptized. Had an experience of God. Was moved to faith. Then I entered my late adolescence and college, and I hit the struggle, just like we all do, or a lot of us do. And then on the other side of it was a kind of homecoming. Birth, experience of God, struggle, homecoming. If that's your story, I do think it is important that you hear me say that does not make you a cliche. What that means is that your life is a signpost. It's evidence of something. God is trying to preach. He's trying to say something through your life and through that pattern, which so many of us share. It's not a cliche. It's a redemption story. It's an assurance. What God is trying to say is we are on our way home. We are born. We hear God. We struggle. We go home. And I don't know where you might be in that pattern, but what I do know is how it ends. 
And that's the thing that God is meant to like preach through this kind of story. He's taking you home. He's doing a thing in us and through us. He is always telling redemption stories. Your life is a redemption story. And I don't even have to know all the particulars to know that. So the question then is, what is God redeeming in this moment, in the wilderness, in Jesus' story? What's the redemption story that he's telling? Well, let's look at it together. Jesus is at his weakest. 40 days of a struggle. Satan comes to him and says, If you are the Son of God... What did God say to Jesus after his baptism? This is my son. With him I am well pleased. First thing to note, Satan is always after your sense of belovedness. He is always trying to make you doubt Not just your relationship with God, your connection to God, but the fact that you are a child of God. You are not just like tangentially connected to him. You are beloved of God. And because Satan knows that that is like the source of our strength and our peace, he's always going after it making us doubt it. So he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, turn this stone into a loaf of bread. Again, familiar Bible readers will recall another moment, story, not Israel, even further back, when Satan saddled up long next side, a human, made them doubt the word of God, tempted them with food, Do you remember? All the way back at the very, very beginning, in the garden in Genesis 3, there Adam and Eve hanging out, happy as they can be. Here comes Satan. Remember, they've just been created, born. They're hanging with God, having an experience of God in the garden. Here comes the struggle. Satan comes alongside Eve and he says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat the fruit? Look how good it looks. And he tempts her with food. And he tempts her to doubt God. He tempts her to doubt that God has her best interests in mind. That he is who he says he is and that she is, therefore, who she thinks she is. I want us to look together at Genesis 3, verse 6. I think this matters. This is verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So she's standing there. She's looking at the fruit. And she thinks, I am hungry. And that looks really good. I would like to have that. And best of all, 
It will make me wise. It will make me godlike. I will then know on my own the difference between good and evil. Really, who needs God after all? I make my own decisions about which trees I can eat from and cannot eat from. Who needs him? Appetite, splendor, ego. These things are like all of us. These are our vulnerabilities as people. It's a part of our humanity. My appetites make me vulnerable. I crave things, food, sex, addiction, all of it. It's our bodies. They're carnal. They crave things. It's part of being human. Splendor. Man, it looked good. It's a vulnerability. I like beautiful things. I want to have things. I need things. I'm human. I need stuff. Makes me feel good. I want to be wise. I want to be powerful. I want to be godlike. We all do. So there are kind of three temptations that Eve reflects on that get named for us in the text. So then it's not really a surprise. When we get to Jesus' temptation, all the way back to Luke 4, when the tempter comes to him, he comes after his what first? His appetite. If you are the Son of God, turn that stone to bread. Eat. You know you want to. You know you should. It's been 40 days. Get your fill. Human after all. And then, secondly, Satan takes him and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, their splendor. He says, in effect, you can have all this. I'll give it all to you. All that good stuff. She'll just worship me. Splendor. And then that doesn't work. So he says to Jesus, takes him up to the top of the temple, the mount. He could have found a higher spot, by the way. It's not like this was the highest place he could find. That's not what matters. What matters is where it is. He takes Jesus to the top of the temple, and all these people there worshiping God, right? This is, these are Jesus' people. This is his fan base. These are the people who have been looking for him to come. And Satan says, why don't you get up there and just, you know, jump off. Show off a little bit. The angels will catch you. You know they have to. Oh, and won't that impress them? Then how they'll worship you with your might and your deeds of power. Not because they love you, but because they're afraid of you. Ego. Have you ever considered maybe that one of the reasons that God doesn't go around doing miracles for us all the time is because he is appealing to our hearts and refusing to exploit our love for power. Do you know what I mean? If God was always flexing his God muscles at every turn, showing you how powerful he is, don't you forget I made the universe then you would never know the difference between your love and your fear. Vladimir Putin subjects 
revere him, honor him because of his might. They love him for his power and what his power will secure for them. He doesn't have to be good. He's powerful. And therefore, we will overlook a multitude of sins so long as that power will work for me. And the Russians, by the way, are not the only ones guilty of doing this. God doesn't have to be good if he's all-powerful. He can just flex a little and we'll worship him all the same. So says Satan. And yet Jesus seemed to be after something else. Our love. Appetite. Splendor. Ego. You can try to convince me all day long that this is just a random coincidence. And I won't believe you. This is a redemption story. This is an acknowledgement to me by Jesus himself that he knows what it is like to be human. Because to be human is to be constantly made vulnerable by those three things, among others. But they pretty well all fall under those three categories. My vulnerabilities, they line up right there pretty much every time. I know we're all different, but we all share this same struggle. If Jesus wasn't actually hungry and he didn't actually think about turning the stone into bread, then he can't help me. If he didn't actually look at all the kingdoms of the earth and want their glory and their splendor, then he doesn't know what it is like to want stuff and he can't help me. And if he didn't think about for a second what it would be like to jump off and have the angels catch him and everybody, yay, 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 look at you, Jesus and he didn't want that a little bit, then he can't help me because that's what it means to be human. But if he did feel it and he did redeem it, then what hope there is for me? What hope there is for you? I believe that this is the Bible's way of saying, I know the struggle. I know the source of your pain. And I am always committed to bringing healing, restoration, and redemption to that pain. If the Bible could talk, I think that's what it would say to all of us today. Here's what I love about this. When Jesus was refuting Satan, he doesn't succumb, of course, to any of these temptations. What he does is he refutes them with Bible verses which you may find terribly annoying. I actually don't think Jesus went around talking in Bible exclusively. I don't think that was like a thing that he did. I think there's a reason that he does it now. And that was so that you and I could know that God's word will always be the last word. God's word will be the last word. And God has said that you are his beloved and in you he is well pleased. His word over your life and over mine and over all of creation, his word will be the last word. And that word is not up for grabs. Yes and amen. It's not just true for all of us. That is true for your life. I don't know what you've been through. I don't have to know. To know that God is committed to redeeming your struggle and his word over you is one of love, resurrection, and renewal. We're not all that different. 
even though our lives look different. That's his word for you. Oh, and Satan would love to make us doubt it, and we do. All the time. I think this is what this means for us. That's nice for the Bible. Sure, all sounds great. What does that mean for you? What if the next 40 days, what if what like God is trying to get us to hear him say is if you will let me bring you into the wilderness, it will be for you a time of healing and redemption. Because your present sins, bad habits, addictions, struggles, they are connected to a past pain, a hurt, a failure, a fall. And he already knows that. And he wants to deal with it. So he's invited you into the wilderness to help you name whatever that was that continues to be a source of failure and frustration and hurt for you. What if this next 40 days was about naming the lies that you carry around with you and believe as a result of that? What if he could heal it and restore it for you? Not what if he can. Because here's what I know. You do not have to go into this wondering if you are going to win or get it right. Jesus has already won this for you. He has already won. Satan sulks away at the end. Looking for a more opportune time. You don't have to wonder. You can go into this next 40 days knowing that Jesus has already said, I did this already, by the way. He's with me. She's with me. And we're going through for the purpose of healing and redemption. This story is already settled. He looked the tempter in the face and said, I know who I am. And I know who they are. And you can go on and get on. In the words of Big Boy, I just quoted Big Boy to you, and I don't know if you're aware of that, (laughs) but I did. (laughs) You can go into these next 40 days with peace. We do a lot of really intentional story work here. By we, I mean Jason Faulkner, mostly, does a lot of really intentional story work here. It's one of, I believe, God's gifts to our whole community through story groups. If this resonates with you and you're like, yeah, I need to spend some time thinking about where I've been, where I'm going, then you should talk to him. This book, I think we have a picture of it on the slide. If you want something to read and this resonates with you, this would be a really great read for you for the next 40 days. It's called Redeeming Heartache. It's all about looking at your past pain, points of woundedness, and being reflective about how it's informing your present, how it's morphing you, mutating you, and what it looks like to you know, be healed. And I think that's what Lent can be about for you. And that's good. That's hope. That's redemption. That's life. Not drudgery. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together if we're able.